Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Like a virgin touch for the very first time by the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank my good friend Madonna for writing that song about her favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam, and this is Stick to Wrestling, the only wicked good wrestling podcast out there. It is the People's Podcast. It is the Major League of Professional Wrestling Podcast. Before we get rolling, I want to encourage, invite you to follow me on Twitter. Just put in the name John McAdam and follow the guys who are fighting with chairs. I also want to invite you to join our Facebook group. If you like the show, you're going to love the Facebook group. We have results. We have a fantasy Crockett Cup tournament going on, and we have a show upcoming that is going to be exclusively taking questions from our Facebook group, and we're doing that uh, on this show as well. I also want to thank Mark Rock and Roland for his generous donation to Stick to Wrestling. If you've donated and I haven't said anything, um, we're recording the same day after that show came out, so it's early in the game as they speak. Uh, let me see little off subject but if you or someone you know is having either health or financial issues due to covid we are you are in our thoughts and hopefully this silly little podcast can help get you through you know take your mind off things uh let me see i want to bring on our guest first of all we are dedicating the show to pat patterson i know by the time it comes out the show comes out on December 11th. Pat's passing is going to be kind of old news, but I wanted to put a unique perspective on Pat Patterson's career. I don't know a ton about his history, like in San Francisco. Uh, I know a little bit about Florida, but I know a lot about his run in the WWF. And to help walk me through that, I want to bring on the guest this week, Ron Lemuth. Ron, thank you for coming on. No problem, John. Great. Thanks for having me on. No worries. Ron is a Red Sox super fan, probably even a bigger fan than me. Like, he can't miss a game. Ron, was this year the most miserable Red Sox season of your lifetime? I mean, it was 60 games. It felt like 260 games. Well, it goes along with everything that's 2020, right? (laughs) (laughs) Excellent point. Except if you're a Devil Rays fan, all three of them. I mean, the, the Red Sox, listen to this. This is a season total. Their ERA... The team's ERA was 5.58, and they allowed 5.85 runs per game. That's, that is staggering. Oh, it was brutal. I mean, it, 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 it's a farce. You know, the whole thing with their starting rotation, every day they had a, 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 an opener going, which was just some reliever from the bullpen. And, and one thing, I might be getting ahead of what you're thinking here, but, you know, Hein Bloom comes in here, comes from Tampa, what they did in Tampa, you can say they're successful and everything, but what, what goes on in Tampa is not going to fly in Boston. Boston fans aren't going to put up with having two openers every, every series against another team. So hopefully uh, I'm really excited, actually, that Alex Cora is coming back. Yes. Uh, I think uh, that's going to be a big plus. I hope they didn't just do that to appease the fan base and are not going to make any moves because they've got to be competitive. I mean, we're Boston. What are you going to do? No, the fans, you know, they don't have patience, and sometimes that's a good thing. It's, it's not always a good thing. But, I mean, you know, the Red Sox, they, they expose us to a new kind of pain this year by being bad. Usually, like, we get the 1978 pain, the 1986 pain, or the 2013 pain. Another way 
the Red Sox have in, inflicted pain on me is by bad free agent signings. Ron, what is your all-time favorite Red Sox free agent signing, and which one is your least favorite? Okay, I'm going to uh, start by saying I'm old, so there's probably people I have forgotten about, but my best, my favorite is probably the most recent one, uh, and that is J.D. Martinez. The, the two years he had prior to coming here and the years he had since, except for this past year, I really liked uh, I, I liked the power. I like home runs, uh, and he was the kind of guy, and he delivered his first couple years here, so uh, hoping he turns it around. My worst wasn't really a free agent, but me and you talked offline a little earlier, and I hate big contracts. I hate long contracts. And the contract they gave Dustin Pedroia was ridiculous. Uh, Eight-year deal. Uh, after his fourth or fifth year, he blew out his knee, and we've been paying for him for the last two years, and probably have to pay for him again this year, too. Yeah, it, that contract ends the end of this year. I mean, he's been broken since, I think, 2016. My all-time worst favorite, we'll start with that, Red Sox signing at the time that they made it, was Johnny Damon. He was still young. It was a reasonable four-year deal. We needed a center fielder, and we needed a leadoff hitter, and he was both of those things. And that worked out really well for Boston, I think. My least favorite, and again, underlining at the time it was signed, it's a tie between Hanley Ramirez and Pablo Sandoval because Ramirez was a shortstop with the Dodgers. He clearly needed to move to third. So now what are we doing, signing two third basemen? No, we're paying Ramirez $20 million a year, and we're going to find out if he could play left field, which he couldn't. And then Sandoval was just terrible in Boston. I don't know what happened to him. Oh, he was terrible. I mean, but I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, uh, when they signed him, I actually thought he was going to turn out decent. So I wasn't happy when they didn't resign him when he was up. Uh, but yeah, definitely uh, below expectations when it came to Pablo. Yeah, I, I mean, like I said, that was not a very happy day. And I was hoping I was wrong, but I was right. Anyway, like I said, we're going to talk about Pat Patterson. Now, I did a little bit of research. I, I, as a matter of fact, I just remembered this. Uh, about an hour ago, I was going to come on the air and say, yeah, Pat Patterson's WWF debut was in 1979. He actually spent a kind of weird, had a weird mini tour of the WWF in 1977. He went to Madison Square Garden and went against Baron Mikel Cicluna, January 17th, 77. Two days later, he's at the Sunnyside Garden uh, wrestling Mark Tendler. And two days after that, he's at the Boston Garden, not even doing a singles match, but was part of a battle royal. Just did the battle royal and left. I remember reading about it in the Ring magazine. Ron, were you going to the Boston Garden yet at this point? No, my debut show at the Garden, it's interesting you asked me that, because my debut show at the Garden was June of 1980. And Patterson was on that card, probably the, my second favorite Pat Patterson live match I saw. He was on the undercard of the Bruno San Martino, Larry Zabisco, Texas death match. That was my first Boston card. And uh, Patterson wrestled Ken Patera that night for the Intercontinental title. But a uh, great match, but uh, I don't want to give out what my favorite live Patterson match was to later in the show. Uh, but that's when I started going to the Garden. I went to Boston Garden pretty regularly between that June of 80 and, and 1983. Okay. And, and did you move to Florida after that? No, oh, I didn't move to Florida until... 1989. Wow. Okay. So what you, uh, that's right. I, I remember you lived. So did you just get tired of it or what happened? No, I, I lived other places before I, went, I was in uh, Long Island for two years <clears throat> and I was in Dallas for two years. So okay. I, 
after I graduated from UMass in 84, I moved away in 85. So, um, got it. So that was pretty much it. All right. Uh, you got a little bit of a head start on me. I started going regularly May 1981. So anyway, Pat Patterson, his debut was at the April 17th, 1979 taping. Uh, he had the Grand Wizard as his manager. Ron, I know you were a big fan. What was your reaction when Pat Patterson first arrived here? Psych. Because, you know, back in 1979, in the territorial days, we never heard about wrestlers coming into our territory until we saw them on TV. And, of course, like most fans, like, like most old-time fans, including yourself, big fans of the magazines. So by 1979, I knew a lot about Patterson, uh, his run as United States champion in San Francisco, his tag teaming with Ray Stevens, their run together in the AWA managed by Bobby Heenan. Boy, talk about three talents together there, right? Oh, yeah. So I heard a lot about him, and it was always exciting. So I can't remember specifically, but I guarantee you that when Vince McMahon and Bruno Sammartino opened championship wrestling that day, and Vince said the debut of Pat Patterson, I guarantee I popped. <laughs> Same here. You know, I mean, you remember this. Vince McMahon would utter the words, and he would say either returning to the World Wrestling Federation or making his World Wrestling Federation debut. I mean, it, it, the the anticipation was electric. Anticipation of who he was going to say, right? Yeah, exactly. And this time he said Pat Patterson. And immediately, like you, I knew who Pat Patterson was. I knew he was still part of the AWA Tag Team Champions. And I was like, okay, well, that's not going to last much longer. And when he came to the ring... With the Grand Wizard, like I knew this guy was going to be huge in the WWF. He was going to be like a, a Greg Valentine slash Ivan Koloff level challenger. Oh, absolutely. No doubt. And I loved him as a heel, too. I loved him as a heel. He had that, like, he, I didn't realize it was a French-Canadian accent, but he had that accent, and it was just, like, nasty. And he, he just came across as a guy with really bad intentions. Yeah, he, he was very arrogant, great ring psychology, got the fans to hate him, all around super talent, no doubt. Now, the first big match Pat Patterson had was against Ted DiBiase on June 19th, 1979. DiBiase was the North American champion. They announced the match the week before on TV. Next week, the main event is going to be Pat Patterson, Ted DiBiase for the Intercontinental title. And I remember coming away from that thinking, are we going to see a title change here? Because it was, even I already knew it was too early for Pat Patterson to lose a match. But, you know, Ted DiBiase had kind of just also had just gotten there. I mean, do you remember having any thoughts about that? Well, first of all, Pat hadn't gone to Rio to win that Intercontinental title yet, John. So it was for the North American title. Yeah. <laughs> you said Intercontinental. Oh, did I, I? I get them yeah, confused. No, it's okay. I'm just kidding anyway. <laughs> But, uh, no, see, Ted DiBiase is another guy. When he first came into the WWW, I don't know if they had changed names, uh, initials yet, but whatever. When he first came to WWF, I mean, I only read a little bit about him. Maybe he was in Central States. He really hadn't made it big yet. But in all honesty, DiBiase, prior to his million-dollar man gimmick, was my favorite pro wrestler. Uh, so when I heard he was fighting Patterson, I thought it was going to be a great match because in Ted's uh, preliminary bouts on TV against Johnny Rods, Jose Estrada, which... You know, you put yourself in the ring with those guys, it's going to be a good match anyway, right? Yeah. He, he, he looked really good. So I was really looking forward to that match, and I, it did it disappoint. I thought it was a, uh, for a TV match, it was one of the best television matches I saw. So two great workers in the ring together. Yeah, totally. I mean, and, you know, the thing was, I mean, Pat Patterson won the match, 
by, you know, reaching into his trunks, grabbing brass knuckles and knocking Ted DiBiase out. So you're getting a couple of things accomplished already that Patterson is a bad, sneaky heel, that he needed these brass knuckles to beat Ted DiBiase. And for me, it established the intercontinental title, excuse me, the North American title as a legitimate title, because in 1976, a little bit into 1977, Bobo Brazil was billed as the United States title uh, champion. Excuse me. He didn't have a belt and they never talked about him defending the title. And I was like, okay, this is kind of a secondary title or is this just, you know, the Bobo Brazil title. And now I'm like, okay, we have a real secondary title here in the WWF. I agree on the Bobo Brazil. I never understood that either, but what was great about the WWF bringing in a secondary title is, is back then all you had was the World Championship and the World Tag Team Champions. And, and that's all we knew. So I guess we didn't think it was a big deal. But history in the WWF was, was it a babyface or a heel as the world champion? Uh, always, always a babyface. Right. I mean, Superstar Graham held it for a year or a year and a half, whatever he held it for. But other than that, Vince Sr. loved having the babyface as the champion being chased by the heels. So the secondary title gave the heels a chance to have a belt. And, Think of who held that Intercontinental title there as heels. They were all great workers. Yes. You had Greg Valentine. You had Morocco, who was like one of my favorite, another one of my favorite wrestlers. Uh, so you had Morocco. You had Kent Patera. So the Intercontinental title pretty much was the secondary title, but it was pretty much also deemed the heel title, too. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, finally you have heels who get a chance to be singles champions in the WWF, which is something we didn't have before that. Right. Exactly. All right, so yeah, we have so we have the brass knuckles finish. Then the first match at Madison Square Garden against Bob Backlund was July second, nineteen seventy nine. Patterson is the you know the still the North American champion, and the match is stopped because of excessive blood from the champion um, Bob Backlund. <sighs> as soon as Patterson came in, I figured, okay, this guy is going to get three matches at Madison against. Bob Backlund, like the real top heels got against Bruno Sammartino. Ron, do you have any thoughts on that? You know, if you look at every heel series with a world ch- with a WWF champion, most of them did go three three matches. You had a couple one-offs, like I think George Steele was a one-off with Bob Backlund. But Patterson, and this is interesting, and maybe you know this, but I just found this out today, but originally this was only supposed to be a three-match series at the Garden. But they had a fourth match because somebody who was supposed to come in didn't. I read about it today, and I forgot who that was, and I don't know if you know the answer. Roderick Piper. No. Not no. No. And you know what's going to kill me now, and I, I, I can't go look it up, but uh, and it was somebody pretty well known. Oh, oh, it was Terry Funk. Terry Funk, okay, it coming Terry in Funk. 79. Yes, it was Terry Funk. I, I can, offline, I can tell you where I've heard about that. <laughs> Okay, because you know what though, like that Terry Funk doing a being a one and done again with Backlund is kind of a curveball. But then again, so was Sweet Hansen coming in. So maybe it was. I don't think it was a one and done. I think that was supposed to be the first the the date of their first match. Okay, in in a way that makes sense because Terry was kind of semi-retired. Um, he was keeping his dates low in the United States uh, from the time he lost the title to race February '77 until he had his big Florida run, which started right around summer of 1979. So maybe, duh. But yeah, I, I maybe. heard a long time ago it was, it was going to be Roddy Piper. 
Because yeah, Piper had made a couple of MSG shots prior to that, right? Yes. Yeah, against like Frank Williams or someone like that. And he, he, he was, went on TV and he had this weird match against Jose Estrada where he was a babyface and the match went to a time limit draw. I don't know if you remember that. Was that an all-star taping? I, I think I do remember. Not possible. Okay. I'm pretty sure. I'm not sure if it was championship or all-star, but I remember like that was a, a very weird match where Roddy Piper comes in. And I love Jose Estrada, but just you'd think he'd go over Jose Estrada. Oh, exactly, because Estrada wasn't pushed as pushed on TV. No. So then the second match, the rematch against Bob Backlund, was July 30th, 1979. And I thought it was an absolutely brilliant finish. Pat Patterson, you know, once again, the brass knuckles appear and the fans go nuts. They're like, okay, this is how he beat Ted DiBiase. Is this how he's going to beat Bob Backlund? Right. And if I remember correctly, Backlund gets, was it a double count out? Because Arnold Skolin hit uh, him with the title belt. Yeah, it was a, uh, it was, I think it was a, uh, no, it says here it was a standing count out at 28-22. And yeah, Skolin attacked Patterson with the championship belt. Okay. Which was like a, a nuclear bomb back then. You know, if you got hit with that belt, you were going down. Oh, absolutely. R- Ryan, I'm sure you remember this. The cover of the Wrestler magazine where it says WWF is in chaos. Pat Patterson beats Bob Backlund. And you see Patterson holding the, the WWF title up. Right. And I think and back then, like we didn't hear. I never heard about what happened at the major arenas in the WWF. Mm-hmm. I mean, you. You just saw what we saw on TV, and we, if we went to the Boston Garden, we would know. We would hear about title changes on TV. But when we get that magazine, and if you remember, the magazines were always a, couple, a month or maybe six weeks behind what was really happening, correct? Uh, it was more like eight weeks. <laughs> okay, yeah, it was, it, was pretty, it was pretty long. So by the time that magazine came out, though, I think we already knew by television that Patterson didn't have the title, right? Yeah, well, that's the thing. I remember walking into you know, the drugstore and seeing that and just being confused for a minute, I'm like, uh, I bet the aftermaths are, are swerving us a little bit. And they were. I mean, technically, it was correct. <laughs> Pat Patterson did beat Bob Backlund, but, you know, that's not, no, certainly not for the title. It's all right. I still like those times better than now. <laughs> oh, same here, man. Definitely same here. Uh, and and I, I don't hate the current product, but, I mean, I, I miss 1979 I, I WWF. I, no, I don't either. On a tangent, I hate to say this, but... I, you know, things change, and, and it kind of aggravates me that old-time fans, uh, I'll call them curmudgeons, really berate today's product because everything changes. Nothing, yep. nothing 20 years ago is the same. So you either adapt or you stop following, but to, to badmouth it, I, I just don't think it's right, you know? Yeah, I agree. I mean, Bo James, friend of mine, who's been on the show before, I mean, I think he puts it perfectly. It, it, it's just not what I grew up on, but he doesn't like rag on it. Right. That's, that's how people should take it, you know? <laughs> I agree. Third match, and you would think this is the final match, but there are no stipulations in this match. They're just, they're just going back with the third match. August 27th, 1979. Once again, Pat Patterson defeated champion Bob Backlund via countout after Patterson uses the brass knuckles. I think this was so well booked the way they, they use the brass knuckles angle. Absolutely, and, and I think, uh, and didn't the Garden sell out every one of these shows too? I believe so. Yeah, and it just shows it, it. just shows the booking, what the booking was like, and it worked back then, no doubt about it. It, it definitely worked, and, and you know, like you were saying earlier, you had different series uh, matches with Backlund, like a uh, Killer Khan or a Sweet Hansen, 
all right, you have one match and Backlund wins and that's it. This time you're having an entire series of matches that, I mean, literally goes on all summer and a little bit into the fall. Absolutely. And you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it, right? So Exactly. Vince Sr. had this formula, and it worked for him. And if, if he saw it wasn't working, he would change it. Yeah. And, you know, Backlund by this point had been champion for, oh, just over uh, about a year and a half. And it's starting to come together, especially in New York. Backlund did really well in New York. Boston, eh, a little bit at the, at the beginning wasn't good. But it, it, overall, it was a huge success. Yeah, and I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't understand it. I really didn't. Today, uh, a personality like Bob Backley wouldn't fly with the fans of today. Wouldn't, wouldn't draw. I don't think he would draw. And back then, he, he was just different from what Bruno and Pedro had brought to the table. I was surprised he drew as well as he did, to be honest with you. You know, and I, I agree with you on some level because Bob was very, you know, very steady, very level. But I always said, you know, Bob Backlund doing an interview was like Tom Seaver or Johnny Bench doing an interview. Just, you know, he, he acted like a real pro athlete. Maybe that helped him. Right. I also think what helped him was his competition. I mean, he had some great challengers. He had yes. some great workers in his reign from the Valentines to the Moroccos. I'll kind of throw Mosk in the, even though I think he was just a big, big galoot, but, um, <laughs> but he was, he was impressive. He was impressive to look at, you know, Patterson. I mean, you could go on and on with the kind of challengers he had, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I've said this before. I mean, I, I give Bob credit for having a great six year run as WWF champion, but I mean, I've, I've said this before. I think people came out not to see Bob Backlund, but to see WWF wrestling. I mean, that that's certainly, uh, that's what I went for. How about you? Absolutely, because I'll tell you what, that period I told you I was going to Boston for 883, they had some great, they had some good lineups. They had some, they had great talent. They really did. I think it pinnacled in 82, 83 when you had, you know, Morocco and Mosca and, you know, Martel and Guerrero as the tag champs and, you know, Snooker. And, and Snooker, yeah, I mean, and Ray Stevens coming in. Ray Stevens coming in was just kind of like almost like Pat Patterson when they announced Ray Stevens debuting. I was like, "Wow, Ray Stevens!" You know, so that that the talent in eighty two, eighty three was unbelievable. It really was. I mean, superstar Billy Graham had taken a step back, but he was still superstar Billy Graham. Bob Orton Jr. I mean, John Studd wasn't great in the ring, but he was impressive to look at. Mm-hmm. Who did you just? Oh, Adrian Adonis and Jesse Ventura. Yes. Yeah. Two more guys when they announced the debut of the East-West Connection. I popped for that one, too. But, you know, you mentioned Superstar Billy Graham. I'll be honest. Boy, I hated that gimmick. Oh, my gosh. You know, I love Superstar with the blonde hair and, and the flexing of the mud. And then he came up with the karate thing, and it was just, I just thought it was awful. Uh, I wasn't crazy about the karate thing either. But, I mean, I can tell you this. Like, I saw, I've seen pictures of Graham from, like, 79. He really didn't have any choice. But, the, you know, he was not going to be the guy with the long blonde hair anymore. <laughs> Right. It was, it was thinning when he was the champion. <laughs> yes. I mean, it, it just, you know, obviously that's not a thing that gets better over time. Um, he wrestled Jerry Lawler, I want to say September 79, and I saw photos of it. And I mean, you know, his hair was almost completely gone. And then summer of 80, he was on the cover of Sports Review Wrestling, and he, he had grown out a beard and completely shaved his head. And I was like, wow, superstar Billy Graham is bald. It doesn't look anything like the old superstar. No, he didn't, especially when he came back here, when he had that mustache, he was a lot smaller. I mean, it was like, I, I loved superstar Billy Graham, and I was happy to have him 
to see him in whatever incarnation was available, but I, I largely agree with you. Yeah, no, definitely. All right, so September 24th, 1979, we have an unprecedented third rematch, a fourth Bob Backlund versus Pat Patterson match. This time it's in the cage, and I remember I, I was in New York visiting at one point, and they were promising that like this was it, this, this match was going to be the final in the series, and one of the best cage, let me say this, Ron, this was the best cage match I had ever seen up until the Shawn Michaels versus Undertaker Hell in a Cell match. What, I mean, what did you think of this match? I liked it, but it's still, I'm still, and it's a famous match. It's not the only reason I liked it, because I actually did watch it. Nothing can top for me the Snooker Morocco cage match at the Garden. Okay, I could see that. And you know what? We're Both of us are lucky. Did you get to see the Snooker Morocco match at the Boston Garden? I don't think I did. Okay, so you're probably like out of state by then. Yeah, then I am one of the lucky thirty about thirty thousand people who got to see Snooka splash Morocco off the cage live and <laughs> something tells me all thirty thousand of us are not around are not all around anymore. Yeah, well that was a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> that explains it. All right, so now we have a, a an unusual thing in Boston, and this was going on when Backlund was champion. A lot of the time Bruno Sammartino would be the main event in Boston. Bob would be elsewhere. And they had two Bruno Sammartino versus Pat Patterson matches at the Boston Garden. Then they had Patterson come in to challenge Bob Backlund. Excuse me. Yeah. Patterson versus Backlund after the Bruno series. Now, Ron, you, you grew up you know, watching wrestling in Boston. Did, did that ever strike you as strange that you know the champion wasn't defending the title, but Bruno was coming in all the time? It was, well, I don't, you know, you got to remember, Bruno was Bruno. I mean, yep. and I'm sure Vince Sr.'s attitude was he was going to draw. If I remember correctly, Bruno, and I'm going to use MSG as an example, I think Backlund defended the title at an MSG show against Afa, one of the Samoans, under a Bruno main event. I can't remember who Bruno wrestled. Zabisco. Oh, okay, it was Zabisco. So to me, there's no way in hell that Backlund would headline against off of the Samoan without something else on top. Oh, yeah. So in that instance, I get it. And I think Bruno only wanted to work a limited amount of dates. So I think it took him where he he could. That match you said Bruno was at Boston. Who did Backlund face? He wasn't on the show. Oh, he wasn't. Okay, so they they weren't on the show together. Right. And it it drew. Oh, yeah, yeah. Of course it did. Yep, yeah. I think I saw Bruno Hansen trying to remember. This was when Backlund was champion, but Bruno Hansen headlined the Garden in a Cage, I thought. Right. That happened in 81, and that was right before I started going. And not just change subject, but I always thought it was really weird that the New York area did not get Bruno versus Stan Hansen, given their past history. They did Shea Stadium. Right. That was, a, that was in 76. And then when Hanson came back late 80, and he was here most of 1981, they, they didn't do Bruno versus Hanson in New York, which, you know, like I said, always surprised me. Yeah, 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 there had to be a reason for it. Uh, pro- I mean, maybe they just didn't have room for it, or, you know, just Bruno didn't want to do it, Hanson didn't want to do it, who knows. I, I'll never forget, though, that Bruno Hanson match in Boston, it, it was an afternoon show, and I remember this vividly because it was the worst live lineup I've ever seen. 
The second match from the top was the Hangman against Pedro Morales, and the rest of the card was like Dominic DiNucci against Baron Cicluna. I mean, it was it was crazy. I just couldn't. But they, they popped a big crowd because of Bruno. Yeah, I remember this is when Boston, they would have a, a Saturday show uh, with a split crew. And in 81, they just didn't have enough wrestlers in theory to do it, yet the fans came out for it. it was, you know, just nuts. That was hot back then. It was very hot. Yeah, it definitely was. Hey, before I go on, I a lot of the information I am using or as a backdrop came from the website, the history of WWE.com. Uh, I want to acknowledge that, and I want to thank Richard Land and Graham Cawthon for their outstanding work in keeping that website going. Thumbs up, guys, and thank you. Now, so Pat Patterson is basically done challenging Bob Backlund for the title, and on November 17th, 1979, Vince McMahon is interviewing the Grand Wizard at ringside, and Vince puts the Wizard on the spot about a rumored deal he was in the process of making. Wizard then says that the deals with Captain Lou Albano and they both came out. They said their attorneys are working on this deal. Ron, do you remember this? And what did you think of all this? I do remember it. And I, but I was, I didn't think it was Patterson to be totally honest with you. No, neither did I, you know, interesting that, and I don't want to jump ahead because I'm sure you're going into the angle that turned Patterson. I love the fact, and I would love to know the reasoning why Patterson was so vehement about going to Albano Stable. Okay, I can I can go with that. Now I'll tell you what. When we get there, I'll tell you what I thought of it. I mean, when I first saw this angle, I was I was intrigued by it. I'm like, okay, something's going on here, but I have literally no idea what it is. So it could have been anything, and we'll find out. Then on the November 24th, 1979 show, Vince McMahon introduced the Grand Wizard, who has a pending deal with Lou Albano, and it's almost completed. He's going to let everyone know when it's finalized. And he went on to say it was going to be the biggest financial deal ever in the WWF. So now the intrigue is flying here. Yes. And, you know, the Grand Wizard was on commentary during a match that talking about the pending deal. And he would do anything in his power to get, get details to us the week after. Yep. And the week after, which was December 1st, 1979, Vince McMahon does an interview with Albano and the Wizard where they announced that Captain Lou Albano had purchased the contract of the Intercontinental Champion Pat Patterson for $100,000. The Wizard said he did it purely for the money as a cash flow problem. And they both said that they didn't care whether or not whether Patterson liked it or not. And as soon as that happened, I was like, wait a minute. I know Pat Patterson has been a good guy before. Are we about to see it in the WWF? I have to love the line about when they said that the wizard uh, due to cash flow problems. That's, that's hilarious. You know? <laughs> Absolutely hilarious. But yeah, well, you like they kind of planted the seed. You're right. They planted the seed since Patterson didn't care if Patterson liked it or not. It was already telling you what was going to happen. Yes. Even I pretty much figured it out. It's like, wow, Patterson is going to be turning good guy pretty soon. And not not exactly the best way to manage people by Lou Albano, a guy who he just spent $100,000 of 1979 money on, which is going to clear up a lot of cash flow problems. And just saying, ah, I don't care how this guy feels about it. A lot of Monopoly money. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Uh, and then the following week, December 8th, 1979, the show opens with Vince McMahon and Bruno Sammartino interviewing Patterson. 
Patterson objects to working with Captain Lou Albano and does not want to be associated with him at all, saying he doesn't like him and that Albano was a slob and a bum. Two things you don't want to be. Uh, Ron, to answer something you were talking about earlier, I was like, wow, Lou Albano is such a low life that even a guy like Pat Patterson doesn't want to be associated with him. I thought that was great. Right, because if you look at the Grand Wizard of Lou Albano, you look at the Grand Wizard, the guy's got class, right? Yeah. Like, look at Albano, although he was my favorite manager at the time, but you look at him and he looked like a bum. So the storyline fit. It absolutely did. And I mean, I could see... You know, looking back, uh, you know, in my 14 year old imagination being like, yeah, it would be fun traveling around and with the Grand Wizard and having him take care of all of your stuff. Whereas Lou Albano, who wants to do that? (laughs) Probably staying in Motel (laughs) Sixes. If you're lucky (laughs) on a good night. And so that same show, and I actually think they should have done this a little bit differently. They should have let it go out for a couple of weeks, but. Pat Patterson is teaming with the Samoans against Larry Zabisco, Dominic Danucci, and Ivan Putsky. And Patterson is, is visibly unhappy with having to be there. And very quickly, Albano and the Samoans turn on him. And Albano leaves his $100,000 protege laying there in a pool of blood. Do you remember seeing this? Yes, I do. And so the whole angle lasted, what, a few weeks? Not, yeah, I mean, from... The time they announced that, you know, a deal is going down to Patterson turning, it looks like four or five weeks. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised they didn't slow play it more. I mean, these days they would have lasted like three months on it. But to be honest, I think it was too quick, you know. And also, it it was such a random six-man tag match, too. I mean, you know, Danucci, Putski, and Zabisco, three guys they they just threw together. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't even like against the the tag team champions plus one, you know. No, Uh, I, I, I get what you're saying. Unless it's, you know, maybe, and what's probably, they're the ones that are smart, and we're the dumb ones, because, you know, if you look at that, you wouldn't expect anything to happen in that match. If it came in with no storyline, I wouldn't have expected anything either. And by the way, I want to throw this in, the Samoans had just started with the WWF maybe, I, I would say not even a month ago. But anyway, I mean, you did have a lot of rando tag teams like that, you know, but... um. I mean, the whole thing was weird. Like I said, I thought that just that week, they rushed it a little bit. Like, you know, Patterson objects, gets turned on the same week. But that's not me complaining. It was a great angle. Right. And they, you know, and who knows, booking-wise throughout the whole Federation, maybe they they were uh, lax in angles going on at the time, so they felt they had to rush it to have something going on. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? I mean, or maybe they just wanted to get Patterson on the road as a babyface. So Patterson is still the Intercontinental Champion. And on April 21st, 1980, he has a match against Ken Patera at Madison Square Garden, and Patera wins the belt. Now, I was really surprised. Uh, and by the way, I should throw this in. By this point, I am getting WOR on my cable. I, I now have cable, and it's on. I'm getting the WOR WWF show. So I'm following every week, and I knew that uh, Ken Patera had just had two matches against Bob Backlund. He'd lost the last one. And now he's wrestling for the Intercontinental title, which was kind of going to be the pattern. Like a, uh, a heel goes up against Backlund and then he loses to Backlund. Then he winds up wrestling Pedro Morales or whoever, in this case, Pat Patterson. And I was really surprised when Patterson won the title. Bron, do you remember remember how you felt about this? You, you mean when Patterson dropped it to Patera? Yes, that's what I meant. 
Now, if I remember correctly, it was MSG. Patterson had his foot on the bottom rope. Uh-huh. Because, uh, yeah, because I knew he didn't, I knew Patera didn't win it clean. I was surprised because you were correct in the pattern that they went with was after someone challenged Backlund, they would go up to Intercontinental and then win it, which I always thought was kind of odd. But So I, I don't remember if there's anyone before Patera that this happened with, because Morocco was after him, right? Yeah. Because yeah, Morocco was after him. So, yeah, I, I was probably pretty surprised when this happened. Uh, but like you said, it ended up becoming uh, what they usually did. Yeah, and, you know, and like and Patera was so good, and they did it for a reason. They had the Texas death match the next month with new intercontinental champion Ken Patera against Bob Backlund. Yeah, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I was just not a big fan of Patterson as a babyface. I just thought he was such a great heel. I don't know. I just, I think he, I just think he lost his edge. Uh, yeah, maybe. I, I always liked him as a babyface. I was fine with him, but you're right. I, I definitely liked him better as a heel. Yeah, no doubt. All right. So now the week after the Shea Stadium show, which was August 9th, 1980. Now, previously, I would say about the past two years, Bruno Sammartino was doing commentary with Vince McMahon. Before that, they had a big gap when Antonino Rocca died, when Vince was just doing commentary himself, and I'm not a big fan of one man, you know, the guy's talking to himself. The week after the Shea Stadium show, Pat Patterson has suddenly joined Vince McMahon on commentary, and Bruno is out of that picture. Uh, Ron, what were your thoughts on Patterson as an announcer? <laughs> you really want to know? <laughs> I definitely want to know. Uh, I wasn't a fan. And I don't know if it was his gimmick. Uh, sometimes I couldn't understand what he was saying. Uh, he would say tag team champion without the S. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know if it was done on purpose. And I was, I'm trying to think, 1980, I was uh, 18 years old. So um, probably, yeah, I, wasn't, I honestly wasn't a fan. No, that, that's okay. I agree with you. A lot of the time, Patterson uh, just came across as a washed-up ex-jock doing commentary. He's not the smartest guy in the world, whatever. But sometimes he was brilliant. I remember a match from Madison Square Garden. It was the night Hogan won the title, as a matter of fact. It was Tito Santana against Magnificent Morocco, and Gorilla Monsoon and Pat Patterson were doing commentary. And Patterson said that Tito Santana begs his friends who are wrestlers to come out and watch his matches and tell him what he did wrong. And I was like, wow, that was, that's like such a neat little cherry on the Sunday to me. It's like, you know, something that's, that makes the product a lot more realistic. Not that he did that every week, but I remember that that stood out to me. Well, I'm actually surprised he said that because back then, I, I can't imagine Vince Jr. allowing that to happen. Do you know what I'm saying? Because that's almost kind of like shooting, you know, shooting in the, on the business, you know? No, it, it wasn't. It wasn't meant that way. It wasn't like, you know a mistake that he made as far as like choreographing a match. It was like a mistake as if wrestling were a shoot and Tito, you did this wrong. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. That's, that's pretty wild that he did that then. No. Or yeah. Like I said, it was like a brilliant little thing. He dumped in there. I loved it. All right. So Patterson now is a single, he is starting to wrestle a little less frequently and 1981 comes along and also, you know what, the, on the taping right after the Shea Stadium show, we have a new heel called Sergeant Slaughter, who is being managed by the Grand Wizard. And every time Pat Patterson 
would interview Sergeant Slaughter. Sergeant Slaughter would get some kind of a little uh, a barb in against Patterson. He would like get in his face and say, you know, challenge him for the Cobra Clutch Challenge. And the wizard would be there saying, you know, hey, I'll offer you $10,000 in the Cobra Clutch Challenge. It was almost like Sergeant Slaughter was sticking up for Grand Wizard, who was Patterson's ex-manager. And he kept the heat going between those two. Yeah, and you could see where this was going, too. You knew there was going to be an angle at some point down the road because you're right, Slaughter kept egging Patterson on in these interviews. Uh, so you knew at some point they were going to come to battle somewhere. Yeah, and, and let me see. I'm looking at my notes here. It said that on March the 7th, 1981, I've seen this. I have this on tape somewhere. The Black Demon is sitting in the chair getting ready to take Sergeant Slaughter's Cobra Clutch Challenge. So right away, something's wrong. <laughs> it's a heel taking the challenge. The guy, Black Demon, gets up, like kind of waves Slaughter off and leaves. He's not having any, any part of this. So Patterson interviews Slaughter about what just happened, and he says the demon's yellow, and so is Patterson, and Slaughter slaps Patterson in the face. Well, Patterson, who had been very calmly saying, no, I'll take the challenge when I feel like I'm ready. Well, he's ready now. Now that, now that Slaughter slapped him, he takes off his jacket, his tie, jumps in the ring, gets in the chair, and of course, Slaughter takes a long time stalling. That's just the way wrestling goes, right, Ron? Absolutely. And it was a great angle. It really was a great angle, and it popped big time. It really did. So they do the angle. Slaughter puts on the Cobra Clutch, and Patterson looks so smart doing this. He runs into the corner and shoots his feet off the corner and almost gets out of it that way. Then he takes Slaughter. He runs into the corner, ducks underneath the corner post, and Slaughter is knocked senseless. And it looks like we're going to see Patterson break the hold. And all of a sudden, Slaughter you know, releases Patterson, takes the chair, and bashes his head in with it, basically. And we get juice. <laughs> we get juice on TV, which is a rarity back then. Absolutely, yep, yep. Yes. Red is green. Yeah, uh, that's what they say in the wrestling business. Now, once again, my hypercritical self, I thought they should have waited a week. Instead of just, oh my God, here it comes right now. I remember watching this with my friends at midnight and we're all just going crazy. Wow, this is really about to happen. And I, I wish they had just said, all right, next week we're going to have the Cobra Clutch Challenge. That would have given us a, just one week to have that marinate and look forward to, and us looking forward to it. Oh, I, I kind of like the spur of the moment doing it right then and there because I think if, you had, if they had done what you said, you, would have, you would definitely would have expected that to happen, you know? Uh, that, you know what? That's a really good point, because if you got people a chance to think it through, well, of course, something crazy is going to happen, right? Right. So I think it was, let's do it right now and, and surprise, well, surprise some of the people, but you knew it was going to happen at some point. Yeah, and they they made you want to see it. They did this over, the, over a course of, I want to say, like six or seven weeks, Slaughter badgering Pat Patterson at ringside, and Patterson just calmly saying, nope, I'm not ready yet. And then, boom, all of a sudden, it, it explodes. Yeah, and it was, uh, it, was, it was a great angle. Like I said, it, uh, it drew well everywhere they went. Yes, it did. Now, what they typically did was they had one match that went to a double disqualification, and then they came back with the alley fight. And the, the alley fight for Madison Square Garden is available on the WWE Network. If you have not seen this match before, see it. It's unbelievable. But Ron and I have a common thread that the alley fight didn't come to the Boston Garden. They had a, a one match in Boston that went to a 
a double disqualification. And then they brought the rematch to Holy Cross Stadium in Worcester, Massachusetts, which was headlined technically by Bob Backlund against Angelo Mosca. But they had the alley fight in Worcester, and both Ron and I were there. Ron, please share your memories of this match. It was probably, it was a, what, it was the best Pat Patterson match I've seen live. But something you mentioned, it was also one of the best shows, uh, live shows I've been to in that time period. Because besides the alley fight, like you said, we had Bob Backlund against Mosca. We also had Morocco defending the IC title against Pedro Morales, which every time they fought was a great match. You had a six-man tag with the Moondogs and Lou Albano against Rick Martel, Tony Greer, and Rick McGraw. It was an outdoor show, which I absolutely loved. And Holy Cross Stadium wasn't like, and I'm gonna, I was at the first uh, WrestleMania that was at MetLife Stadium, had the absolute most miserable time of my life. The sight lines were horrible, was far away, it was cold as hell. But you put Holy Cross Stadium next to that, small stadium, I was in the bleachers, lower bleachers, like to the left of the center of the ring, great seats, tremendous show, tremendous match, and it wasn't as good as the MSG match, but being there live, it might as well have been. Now, you see, I thought the and I'm working from an almost 40 year memory here. Uh, when I first saw the alley fight from Madison Square Garden in '87, I, okay, I was working with a six year old memory at the time. I was like, wow, I saw this exact same match in, in, in Worcester, only it was better because both guys got taken out on, in ambulances. Right. And I met well, MSG, and they didn't do that on MSG. So that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, that was. By the way, that um, Holy Cross Stadium show was my first wrestling show that was not a spot show. It was probably one of the 10 first shows I ever went to, and I got spoiled. I mean, I know, I'm like, I see this match that is absolute to me, pro wrestling nirvana. It was just you know so violent and so brutal, and these guys wanted to kill each other, and I loved it, and it's like, I didn't get to see... Like, that might have been the best match I've ever seen live. It's definitely in the top five. Like, you know, I, I was spoiled right off the bat. John, let me ask you a question. So, obviously, Worcester, they, they, at, the, at that time, they were holding shows at the Worcester Memorial Auditorium every other Thursday night. Do you know if prior to this Holy Cross show, Slaughter and Patterson had a match at the auditorium? I do not know that. I apologize. Um, that's a good thought. Like, you know, and, and that show... The Holy Cross show was, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it was pushed heavily on Boston television. Like, you know, instead of getting all of the spots from the Boston Garden, you would have interviews telling you to come see the show in Worcester. Right. Plus Channel 27 out of Worcester, uh, All-Star Wrestling was promoting it, too. Yeah. Uh, well, you see, that's the thing. I didn't get Channel 27 on my cable system, so I would have to, like, pull out you know, the second TV we had and wrestle with the... Uh, old antenna ears and try to get that in. Sometimes I could, I could get it. Sometimes I couldn't. I was going to say you had cable in 1979. I had cable starting February 1980. Wow. Okay. I know. This is 81. Yeah. See, I didn't have it, so I was using the UHF dial. <laughs> okay. That yeah, that's what I was using for 27. <laughs> no, I, I have said this before. The the first week. I had cable, probably more like the first month, was nothing but me searching for pro wrestling. And I found, like, I got, like, at first one extra hour of it, and the first match I saw was Bob Armstrong winning the Southeastern title from a guy named Sterling Golden. Wow, that's crazy. 
<laughs> I was like, hey. If you were a kid nowadays, you'd be in Nirvana with as much wrestling you can watch. You know what? At, at some point, though, like, how much is oversaturation? Like, I think you, you, you'll you get this. I mean, we got one or two hours of wrestling a week, and that was it. And it's almost like, you know, it made you want it more. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I'm going to be totally honest with you, and a lot of people will hate me for saying this, but, like, um, I'm watching, and sorry to get off the Pat Patterson topic for a minute here, but I'm watching the uh, AEW show last Wednesday night, a couple nights ago. And when they did the angle uh, with Kenny Omega uh, and uh, John Moxley, and they're in the parking lot, and Alex Marvez asked them uh, what's going on, they say, you'll find out Tuesday night on Axe TV and Impact. I haven't watched Impact in like six, seven years, you know, and um, I, there's just too much. I, I have, I have uh, other things to do in my life, you know what I mean? I, don't, I do. I don't have time to spend watching all this wrestling. So right away I'm thinking, great, I mean, first of all, I don't get Axe TV on my cable. I know I can find other ways to watch it, but you know, and it, but you're right. Two hours for us, it wet our appetite. And the other thing about back then also is think about this. You know, even Bruno when he was doing commentary, if you had Angelo Mosca get Steve King, Bruno would sit, sit there and go, "Ah, King's got no chance." You know, can you imagine these days having Vince McMahon Jr. in your ear as you're announcing and you're saying that? I yeah. Mean, it's crazy, and, and we, as fans, when we were younger, we never thought anything of it. But if you really thought about it, why would they, why would they put in these monsters against these little guys with that, that had no shot? But it's all we knew. It, it was all we knew. I mean, why is Steve King still a pro wrestler after all these years when he can't win a single match, but he's doing it anyway? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Well, it's a one mystery you're not supposed to ask. <laughs> I mean, we, we, I mean, both you and I know, I mean, uh, we watch TV. I'm like, okay, why isn't Ivan Putski against Stan Hansen and, and and Steve King against Jose Estrada? And we both know the answer to that question because they're making us go to the arena to see the good stuff. But, you know, to flip it, and I'll be honest with you, it's like now it, I, there's no difference to me from watching Raw or a pay-per-view almost, you know. And, and I honestly don't like that format. I mean, because, of course, you can't go to live shows now anyway because of COVID, but everything's given away on everything's on the on the weekly shows so to me pay-per-views for the most part aren't even that special anymore they, they aren't because they're they're they've been once a month for the past 30 years and that's what that's what i watch now i i very rarely do i watch raw or smackdown even though i don't think they're bad i watch the monthly pay-per-views but that's it and you know it's like i'm like you i have other things to do i have other things to watch yeah, I, I for Raw and SmackDown, I DVR them and I fast forward through most of it just to stay on top of what's going on. I'll be honest with you, I do enjoy AEW though, I really do. Good, I I definitely am glad to hear that. Um, I don't know, I the guy who owns AEW, Tony Khan, used to get tapes for me. Used to get what? He used to get videotapes for me. I would send him videotapes in exchange for him working on my website. Well, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah and, and you know hey i hope i hope tony's listening i hope he's doing good he was still in his teens back then he was uh living in uh champaign illinois who knows in a couple weeks i might see you in the ring refereeing <laughs> <laughs> maybe all right so now we, we're getting to the end to, we're getting towards the end of patterson's career he's cut way back on his dates but the, he does have a couple of angles left in him uh september 19th 1981, here's the backdrop. Angelo Mosca, that big galoot, he's been on TV 
tormenting jobbers worse than the regular heels did. He would constantly be pinning them, and the ref would go one, two, and Mosca would pull the guy up. And this was going on over and over again every week. Then finally, Dick Worley comes in and disqualifies Mosca in the middle of a match against Victor Mercado. Uh, do you remember Victor Mercado? Absolutely. I remember all, I'm not, I don't like to call him by the jobber name, but I, I remember all the enhancement talent. It's surprising when I watch an old all-star wrestling tape before Joe McHugh says who it is. I know who it is, which is unbelievable memory, to be honest with you. You know what? I do the exact same thing. I mean, just, just today, I'm like, before they even announced it, I'm like, yeah, that's Tony Cologne, and it was. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. But, but Victor Mercader was special because he always looked really scared before the match. They would <laughs> announce his name. He'd like, have these bug-eyed looked like, oh, man, I'm about to get killed again. Well, look at the size of him. I mean, he'd always go against these monsters, you know? And, he, and he'd be back for more the next week. God bless him. But anyway, <laughs> Dick Worley disqualifies Mosca, and Patterson is interviewing Dick Worley. Uh, and Patterson had been really complaining about Mosca's behavior. And so he's outside the ring. He's, he's congratulating Dick Worley, interviewing him. And Angelo Mosca grabs a metal water pitcher and slams Pat Patterson in the head with it. Kind of unprovoked, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a it was a good angle though. Honestly, um, I, I I really enjoyed it. I didn't. That's one I didn't see coming. To be honest with you, I didn't think I didn't think it was going. The feud was going to begin that way. So I actually liked that. Yeah, I, I liked it too. I was like, you know, why is he hitting Patterson? He should be hitting Worley. Yeah, although honestly, I don't think Moscow was the worker slaughter was. So that feud, I, I don't think was as good. No, it, it definitely wasn't. And then uh, even after that angle. They had matches like uh, Bob Backlund defending the title against Moscow with Pat Patterson as referee. Like that's going to be he, like he's going to be fair. Right, right. I wonder how that was going to go. <laughs> <laughs> so after this, Pat has now cut after the Moscow feud. He's cut way back on his dates. I checked the uh, history of WWE. He is mostly you know, working in the office, working on television. He was doing both shows, the championship wrestling and the all star wrestling. Uh, he was usually on the shows when the WWF was in Los Angeles, Phoenix, or San Diego. So he was a big draw out there. And then finally, he kind of gets his farewell angle. It was uh, on October 23rd, 1983. Ivan Koloff beats his opponent, Bob Clement, and then he goes to be interviewed by Pat Patterson. And for, like, no real reason, Koloff, like, you know, just clocks him one. And Koloff walks off, and Patterson goes to chase him. We don't see any actual feud besides the, uh, the the swing. Ron, were you watching wrestling still when this was going on? Do you remember this? It's so funny because, yes, I was watching back then, but I don't remember this angle until you mentioned it to me yesterday. So I, that shows how memorable it was. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I kind of laughed. You know, I, I said, you know, this leads to Pat Patterson's final feud anyway, the Pat Patterson versus Ivan Koloff feud. And I wrote to Ron next to it, I heard a bit of a dud. And Ron's like, yeah, I don't even remember it. <laughs> That's right. It was bad. Uh, we're winding down. By early 1984, Pat Patterson is replaced uh, as TV commentator by Gene Okerlund. And Ron, I don't know if you remember this. Pat Patterson wasn't going on like championship wrestling and all-star wrestling doing jobs. But he was doing jobs at like Madison Square Garden, uh, Toronto, uh, Philadelphia, 
and they were airing them on TV. I remember that made me a little bit sad. It was like, wow, Pat Patterson, you know, used to be this great wrestler, and clearly he's winding down if he's losing on TV. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Can you? I'm trying to remember who he did jobs for in '84. Uh, he did one for Kamala on TV. He did one for Pat Patterson on TV. I remember like the, the Patera one being like, wow, this was a really important match just four years ago. And now Patterson's just, you know, losing cleanly on television to Patera. Yeah, it's funny because there was a couple other guys, I think, that when they their careers are winding down, Vince Jr. used them in that role. I'm trying to think off the top of my head and I can't, but. The um, only other guy I can think of is Chief J. Strongbow, and it was right around the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. I think he jo- yeah he jobbed for a few guys. I think John Studd was one of them back in '84. Oh yeah, yeah. Strongbow did lose to John Studd on TV, uh, and again, this wasn't like you know coming from Poughkeepsie. It was like you know okay, the match was taped in St. Louis or wherever, but we're seeing it on All American Wrestling or or TNT, whatever. Right, right. Yeah. So Patterson, like I said, he was done and where he took some questions on Pat Patterson. This is why you should join the Facebook group. If you're listening, first one is from Brandon Rice. He's going if, if he's okay with it, he's going to be back on the show soon. Did Pat ever have an issue with guys in the locker room due to his outside lifestyle? Or was that something that wasn't known by anyone? Ron, before you answer Brandon's question, I have not read Pat Patterson's book. Have you? I did not know. Uh, okay. I, I haven't read it either. So what are your thoughts on this? I'm going to say that we'll stick with his WWF time. So when he came in 79, I think he was, first of all, he was open about it. Uh, He used to joke a lot about it, about him being gay. Uh, He had no problem with talking about it and joking. Uh, I think he was so respected uh, in 79 that no one gave him a hard time. I mean, he was a very wrestler. And in the beginning, also, I was reading about when he was in San Francisco starting out, all the women that used to go to the Cow Palace shows, kind of like, um, uh, I don't know how to put this, but, you know, uh, you know what, what's the term we used to call them back then, John? I believe it rhymes with cats. <laughs> there you go. I think people listening will get where I'm going with this. But anyway, they used to make their rounds with the wrestlers, and they always made comments about, oh, it's too bad the, uh, the top star in our territory doesn't like girls, you know, but... But other than a few cat calls when he was a heel from some from guys, he, he didn't he didn't uh, surprising because back in that day it wasn't as accepted as it is these days, unfortunately. No. Uh, but he never he never had any problems. I mean, I think it's people. He did such a great job as a heel. They booed him, and, and that really wasn't an issue for him. The other thing, also, he was such a great brawler when he started out that people thought he was a real tough guy. But in all honesty, he wasn't. But the way he worked in the ring, people thought he was. So nobody really wanted to mess with him. No, absolutely not. And, you know, to go further, like, I had no idea Pat Patterson was gay until I started getting The Observer in, you know, like 87-ish. And, you know, it was in there that, you know, at, at some point that Patterson was. And I was just like, you know, wow. And you're right. It was nowhere near as accepted back in 79 as it is today. But, I mean, if, if you're Pat Patterson... And you're rolling into the WWF, you know, you are established. No one's giving you a real hard time about anything. My Absolutely. guess is, yeah, I mean, my guess is that he got ribbed about it a lot. And he just rolled with it and laughed along with it because he didn't care. Right. Absolutely. All right. Next question is from Greg Klein. Could he have been a WWF or a WWF champion? And if so, in what context? What do you think, Ron? 
He could have been a champion. He could not have been a heel because Vince Sr. didn't like heels as world champion. As a face, I, I, I guess he could have been. I just don't know if he would have had the drawing power on top. I question that. My answer is basically no. If, let's say, superstar Billy Graham wasn't available as the transitional WWF champion who had the belt like 10 months, I, I think Vince Vince Sr. would not have gone in a Pat Patterson's direction. He would have gone with Ernie Ladd or Ivan Koloff, someone like that, or he just wouldn't have done it at all. You know, Pat Patterson, he just didn't have, you know, he was a great athlete. He just didn't have like the WWF heel type body. You know, another guy who could have done it was Ken Patera. Um, and Ken Patera claims he was supposed to have done it. But anyway, as a heel, uh, as, a, as a baby face, I also don't see it. And like I said, that's not a knock on Pat Patterson. There's just a very small number of guys who could have fit that role. And I just don't think it's him. Right. No, I agree. Yeah, I agree. It, I, I think he would have been a better heel champion. But again, Vince wouldn't have done it anyway. Yeah, I, I think what they did with him was good. What was they had him with the Intercontinental title as both a heel and a babyface, and I thought he did well in that role. I thought he carried the title really well. Yes, and also, they were smart with his angles with Slaughter and Mosca, because as an interviewer, the fans like you. you know. So he was still over with the fans being uh, you know, side-by-side with Vince, doing the commentating. So that also made his fuse with Mosca and Slaughter successful, because he's still in the fans' eyes, and Fans, for the most part, back then loved the babyface commentators because that's uh, really all we had back then. It is all we had back Mario, then. Except for Piper in Georgia. Forgot about that. Well, even that. I mean, Piper showed up in Georgia at the end of 81, and that was a very unique thing where he's kind of snarkish behind the, the mic. He didn't go full heel right away, but he was, you know, like I said, just a little bit of a snarky guy, and it worked. Right. Well, that was Piper was Piper. Yeah, exactly. Only Piper could have done that. Ian Totten, what's the greatest match of his that you ever saw live? I think we're going to, we're going to be talking about second place here, Ron. Yeah, it's never was the Holy Cross show for me, no doubt. For me too. And then the second one would have been uh, his match with Ken Patera that I saw in Boston uh, in June of '80, which was my first Boston show. Oh, wow, that you know what? If those two had their working shoes on, that was that was going to be a great match. Oh, it was. I mean, it, yeah, I love Patera back in the day was unbelievable. Again, uh, the talent they had back then was great. But yeah, Patera Patterson, and they worked great together, too. I mean, I am of the opinion that, I mean, I thought at the time, right around 81, 82, as soon as Ken Patera showed up on TV, he was going to win the title from Bob Backlund and have that, you know, 10, 12 month run that, that superstar Billy Graham had. I also think Patera could have been the NWA champion. It's funny you say that because there were quite a few Backlund challengers. And, you know, I, I was, I'm right there with you with Patera. There was other challengers that I thought were, were going to be back then for the title. And back then, I, I don't want to say we're smart fans now, but back then we weren't as knowledgeable. So we really thought there was a shot. I, I really thought he was going to have Morocco have a run with the belt as well. Oh, when Morocco showed up again at the end of 82, after he, he had been gone for less than a year, I'm like, this is it. Backlund's losing the title. I was convinced of it. But I'm telling you, Morocco, and I hate to keep talking about Morocco, but uh, to me, uh, I would give him Lex Luger's moniker. He, I thought he was the total package. I mean, his interviews were unbelievable. He could work in the ring. He could bump. 
And I always hated when guys, like when he came back as the rock, God, it was awful. And I, I hated that because I wanted to remember him as I remembered him back in 82, 83, you know? Yeah, you, okay, I get that. He didn't last very long in that role, though. That was only like, oh, I want to say 18 months. He turned babyface against Bob Orton Jr., and he was gone by like September 88. Yeah, he was hanging out with Superstar with the cane. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. We had to have Superstar Billy Graham with a TV role. I will yeah. answer Ian's question. My favorite Pat Patterson match, and I'll give you the background. It was Rick Martel and Tony Gurria against Fuji and Saito with Patterson as the referee. Patterson disqualifies the bad guys, and then Fuji and Saito beat the crap out of him, and Boston Garden was near riot status. Were you here for the show, Ron? I think it was I January was 82. I was at that show. Okay. So the next month, we have a six-man tag. So nice linear booking. It's Pat Patterson teaming with Gurria and Martel against Fuji Saito and Captain Lou Albano, which was also a good match. You were there to, You were there for that one, right? Yes, I was. Yep. And then, then finally, you know, once again, excellent linear booking. We have Pat Patterson against Captain Lou Albano a, via countout at 720. We do the only match Lou Albano has. He gets beaten up, he juices, and he staggers back to the dressing room. Were you there for this one, too? Yeah, and you're right. Every match Albano had against somebody individually, that's how it ended. It was hilarious, you know? You said linear booking, and that was so great about house shows back then was that they were at the Garden every month. And my one of the highlights, believe it or not, for me was before the last match when they announced the whole card for the next month. Which is silly, because you're there, you should be enjoying what you're watching. But I used to love to hear what was coming up the following month. Ron, we are we are kindred spirits. I mean, I remember that was one of the highlights of the show. And driving home, which was about 40 minutes, we would talk more about the upcoming show than we did the show we just saw. Yeah, it was, uh, it was so much fun. It really was. It was. These are the, just great memories. Brett Nicholas wants to know, what's the best hotel in Rio de Janeiro, and I held this one out. Uh, Brent, I'm sorry, this is stick to wrestling. We don't talk about anything that I talk about the travel and stuff, but we didn't talk about the North American title transitioning into the intercontinental title, right? That that was that huge tournament down there, right? Oh, yeah, 16 man tournament. I think Patterson beat Charlie Brown in the finals. <laughs> Charlie Brown, oh, man, I, I used to when I was in New York. Uh, visiting, there was this UHF station. I think it was called Ringside Forty Nine, where Charlie Brown was one of the top guys. It was it was an independent that had like a couple of WWF jobbers as like big stars. And he was on top. I'm not kidding. Oh my god, he was bad. He was bad. <laughs> From Dawson, Georgia, I remember they they were announcing that in yep. Spanish. But yep. anyway, I mean, yeah, Pat Patterson, you know says he won this tournament in, in Rio de Janeiro, and he's forfeiting the North American title in favor of this new intercontinental title. And even as a 14-year-old, I'm like, okay, they're just changing the name of the title. Yeah, um, I'm trying to remember. I, I, I mean, back then, I guess there was really no way to know if it was true or not, to be honest with you, you know? No, I um, mean, you're right. I just, you know kind of figured it out i mean and at the time i'm like well there's a couple of other north american titles out there but this intracontinental title i mean i thought that sounded really cool to be honest with you 
Yeah, it's funny. I always like the North American title, though. It's probably because of Mid-South, though. That's what I always relate that to. Yeah, um, from what I understand, Vince Sr. was like, oh, there's a North American title that Bill Watts is using. Well, we'll use, we'll use a different name. Yeah. All right. Yeah. David Jordan asks, how much of Vince's success is Pat responsible for? Ron, what do you think? A lot. I, I really do. I mean, Patterson was his right-hand man. He was a great finisher, came up with great, his, he was a great booker, came up with, you ask any wrestler from Shawn Michaels to Bret Hart, and they'll tell you that Patterson was a genius when it came to finishes. He, he invented so-called the Royal Rumble, uh, which is very popular, one of the major pay-per-views now. I think Vince probably listened to Pat more than, and, and we hear stories about how tough Vince can be and changes and rewrites the, rewrites the, st- the shows every week, so forth, so on. But I think Patterson was one guy he really trusted and listened to. I mean, I agree with you. And my answer to David's question is exactly the same as yours a lot. I mean, I'm certain that Patterson, from the time he arrived in 79, like, I think they told him, look, you know, you're coming in as part of the office. You know, we're going to turn you baby face. You're not just going to have that, you know, nine or 10 month run here. And he, I'm, I'm sure he taught, Vince Jr. a lot, not only after he took over the company, not only after he went national, but, you know, even before Vince Jr. got the company from Vince Sr. Right. Well, well, you you know that when they were doing commentary together, I'm sure when they were off camera that Patterson was giving him advice and talking to him and, and yes. teaching, him business, teaching him the business while they worked together. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'm sure. I mean, his finishes, his creativity, he was, he was a, a positive to the WWF, no questions asked. Yeah, I read a lot of tributes from, you know, people like The Rock, who, you know, Pat Patterson is responsible for where The Rock, you know, got his first job, or I'm sorry, came into the WWF, you know, from The Rock to Triple H to Hart to Michaels. I read all these tributes, and that's one of the things they said. He's one of the smartest guys in the business. He he was the finish man, you know, and uh, he did a lot for this company. He really did. Yeah, and you know, if you go on WWE Network and they have the uh, the roundtable discussions, I mean, you can see Patterson. He, he just he's the smartest guy in the room. Absolutely, no, he he was it's unbelievable. Yeah, he he was something else, and he'll he'll definitely be missed. Uh, final question from Pete Pingle. I have always wondered how Patterson felt from going from feuding with Backlund and Slaughter, which is professional wrestling, and then becoming one of the stooges and the business changing to sports entertainment. Now, let me throw this in. I remember reading Mick Foley's first book, and Mick correctly said that more people knew of Pat Patterson and Jerry Briscoe being Vince's stooges, and more people saw them doing that than they ever did in, you know, whether it be Jerry Briscoe wrestling in Florida or Pat Patterson wrestling all over the world. In reality, it's true. But, Ron, what do you think of it? What do I think if Patterson liked being one of the Stooges? Uh, yeah, how do you think he felt about it? I think at that point in his career, and, and from everything I've read, he was a real jokester, too. And he always yeah. liked to make people laugh. And he was, a, you know, he pulled ribs and everything. and. I think at this point in his career, he was so tight with Vince, I don't think he minded. I, I think if, if they had tried to get him to do that early in his career, when wrestling was a lot different anyway, I think he would have said, no way, I'm not doing it. You know, 
Right. I think at this point in his career, uh, he he had a great sense of humor. And he, I think he I think he enjoyed it. I'll I'll go even further. I would I'll bet he loved it. I mean, and I don't care what anyone says. The Stooges were hilarious, and that was a fun time in wrestling. You know, it was a little raunchy, but I, I still loved watching Raw every every Monday night, and just the stuff they would come up with, and and you know, I'm I'm sure both Pat Patterson and Jerry Briscoe loved doing it. They loved being back in front of the camera. They both had good senses of humor. I, I no question in my mind. I bet Patterson got a huge kick out of it. I bet he came up with a lot of the skits they did, too. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if he came up with the whole thing. <laughs> All right. Well, that covers it. Uh, rest in peace, Pat Patterson, a legend's legend, uh, not just, you know, in front of the camera, but behind the camera. Ron, thank you for coming on. And, you know, you were great as always. I want to have you back soon. No problem. Thanks for having me, John. It was great. And, you know, final note about Pat Patterson. You know, I'm at the age where these guys pass away. It, it hits home, man. I mean, I grew up watching a lot of these guys, and it's everyone that goes, it's tough. Yes. You never get used to it. You never just say, oh, you know, Bruno died, Pedro died. Yeah, I'm used to it. Like, no, every time it, it happens, it's like, oh, man. Correct. Sad to yeah. say. Thanks again, though, John. No, thank you. And uh, I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, who makes this show sound really, really good. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Everyone be safe, wear a mask, and so long from the Granite State. This concludes our podcast day.